Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 38. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Luke 23, 26 on page 884. This is Luke's account of Jesus' crucifixion. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 26. This is the very word of God. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never borne and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly, asking that according to your promise, you would not allow your word to return to you void this morning, but that by your Spirit, you would cause it to bring forth a harvest in our lives, Father. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your gospel this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the exhibits that my family saw when we were at the Natural History Museum in New York a week ago was an a exhibit on our five senses. It was an exhibit about the way that we use our five senses to make sense of the world as we experience it. Interestingly, one of the highlights of that exhibit was not how well our senses work, but how our senses can sometimes fool us. There were several amazing optical illusions. Now, some optical illusions are, are fairly simple. You, you arrange straight lines in a certain way and you can cause someone to see a curve. Or, or you can put together objects in a certain way and, and you can cause someone to see movement in a still picture. But there are other illusions that are more sophisticated. You 
may have heard of a so-called guerrilla video. You, you may have heard about this test conducted at a, at a university. A group of subjects are seated in front of a television, and they are told that their powers of perception are being tested. They're then instructed to count the number of passes successfully completed by a team in white shirts. They press play, and the, the two teams begin to, to pass ball, one in white shirts and one in black shirts. Remember, they're only supposed to be counting the passes by the white shirts. And so they, they watch carefully as they pass the ball back and forth. And when the video is over, the instructors ask those who were watching, all right, how many passes did the team complete? And the answers come back, 15, 13, 14. There's always some disagreement when the instructors tell them that the, fact the team did in fact complete 14 passes, those who got it right feel proud. They, they feel they have strong sense of perception. But then the instructors ask an unexpected question. They say, did you see the gorilla? And at this point, no one's quite sure what they're talking about. But during the game, as these two teams pass the ball back and forth, a man in a gorilla suit walked to the middle of the screen, beat his chest for two or three seconds, and then walked off to the left. And it's amazing how many students don't see the gorilla. They actually had this video playing at the Natural History Museum while we were there. And of course, I knew about the video. I'd been told about it before, so I saw the gorilla. But the woman standing next to me did not. She was utterly amazed. She was like, what gorilla? What are you talking about? I didn't see it. But then the, the narrator at the Natural History Museum said, now for those of you who knew about this video, we have some other questions. And they began to list other things that happened during the video. They said, did you, did you see that, that the black team actually stopped passing the basketball and started passing a beach ball? Did you see that one of their teammates just quit and walked off screen? Did you see that the curtain behind the whole thing changed colors like five times, from, from blue to, to purple to green to yellow to red? Did you see any of those things? And of course, I had to admit that no, I had not. I, I hadn't seen those things. Why? Because I wasn't looking for them. You see, that's the way that our perception often works. We, we see not what's actually going on before our eyes, but we see what we expect to see. And I want to suggest to you this morning that in this text, Luke is, is challenging our sense of perception. He is saying, what do you see? There are certain things that you expect to see at a crucifixion. But is that what's really going on? In a sense, what we have here in this text is a pair of optical illusions. Because what we think we see is not actually what is going on. Look with me at the first illusion, if I may call it that, in verse 26 through 31. Look again at those verses. Because the first thing that we see in this passage is Jesus' physical weakness. Whether from the beatings that he has endured or the emotional exhaustion of his passion or some combination of the two, Jesus isn't able to carry his own cross to the place of his execution. He simply collapses under its weight. And so the soldiers seize a, a man named Simon and they force him to carry Jesus' cross for him. It reminds us that the Jesus isn't some superman. He is a, a man with all of our frailties 
and weakness. He, he doesn't endure the, the persecution and abuse of the Jewish and the Roman leaders as, as if he were some superman, allowing his enemies to hit him to no effect. But rather, Jesus experiences the full force of what is being done to him. His suffering is real. It is painful, even debilitating. He is truly overwhelmed. His ordeal is more than he can handle physically. But despite the extent of his suffering, notice what Jesus says to the great multitude of people and and to the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, we don't know for certain who these people are. Some, because they are mourning and lamenting, believe that these must be Jesus' disciples and the the women who supported Jesus throughout his ministry. However, it seems unlikely that Luke would refer to Jesus' disciples and to his friends as a great multitude at this point. And so, it's much more likely that this is simply the same crowd that had gathered for the feast. This is the crowd that had cheered him as he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is the crowd that had called for him to be crucified before Pilate, remember, a a crucifixion was a public spectacle. So it would have been common for the crowd to gather to witness it, and it would have been common in that day to, to mourn and lament the great tragedy of what was going on, even as you gathered to watch the man die. But whoever they are, whether they are his disciples or whether they are simply the crowd, what I want you to notice is what Jesus says to them. From his position of great weakness and suffering... Jesus says to the crowd, and he says to these women, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Why does Jesus tell them that they ought to be weeping for themselves rather than for him? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. He says, For behold, The days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is saying that despite appearances, He is not the one to be mourned in this situation. He is not the tragic figure. Remember what we've seen in in previous weeks. Jesus is going to the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He goes knowing the joy that has been set before him, the, the glory that awaits him at his Father's right hand. And importantly, as we, as we saw last Sunday, he knows the power to save those whom he loves that will be his after his resurrection. And so despite appearances, Jesus is not the one to be mourned. But on the contrary, the women ought to be weeping for themselves because there is coming a severe judgment. There is coming an outpouring of the wrath of God upon Jerusalem. A judgment that that Jesus says will be so great that the the people would rather end their lives than endure it. A, A judgment that will be so terrible the mothers will think they would have been better off never to have had children. 
This is, of course, the, the judgment that Jesus previously foretold in, in Luke 21. You can turn back just a page or two and, and find it. Remember what Jesus said there in Luke 21, beginning at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he says, then know that its desolation has come near. Then that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that has been written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. This is the judgment of God. It is, it is the execution of God's wrath against a rebellious and, and disobedient People. And notice what, what Jesus says in verse 31, back in chapter 23. He says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? I'm not sure about you, but for me at least, the meaning of that statement is not immediately clear. It's, and it's much debated what it, it is that, that Jesus is, is getting at. But most commentators agree that Jesus is comparing what he is presently suffering with what the city will suffer in the near future. If, if he, a green and living branch, is treated this way, how much more will the wrath of God be poured out on the dead wood of Jerusalem? And so again, Jesus is saying that despite appearances, he is not the one to be mourned, but rather the people of Jerusalem ought to be mourning for themselves. Because the day is on the horizon, the day is near when God's wrath against their sin will be poured out. But what I want you to see is that this is more than a mere statement of fact. Jesus isn't just telling them what is going to happen. Throughout Scripture, whenever God warns of an impending judgment, it is always meant to be heard as a call to repentance. Whether the, the call is explicitly stated or not. And that's what's going on here. This is a, a call to repentance. Jesus is, is pleading with the people of Jerusalem one last time to repent and be saved from the coming wrath of God. We see this in the way that he addresses the women. Look again at verse 28. He, he says to them, daughters of Jerusalem. That is a, a tender term of endearment. It, it expresses concern and compassion. Jesus is, is not shouting a vindictive warning at his enemies. But on the contrary, he is pleading with them lovingly. He is warning them as a man warns his friend when he sees him running headlong into disaster. The coming destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 may have been irrevocably set, but it wasn't too late for the people of Jerusalem to escape the wrath of which that destruction was but a foretaste, of which that destruction was, was but a preview. They could still repent and be saved. And Jesus was pleading with them to, to see him for who he was 
and to receive and rest upon him for their salvation. This morning, I want you to understand that that same day of wrath still lingers on the horizon. There is yet, even today, a coming day of wrath. Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 2 when he warns his kinsmen that they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And in 1 Thessalonians, he, he refers to it simply as the coming wrath of God. That day still lingers. That that day is still there upon the horizon. And what you need to know, what we all need to know this morning, is that that wrath is stored up for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All who have sinned are subject to that wrath. And that includes you. Every one of us here this morning is a sinner. We have all fallen short of of God's glory. We have all failed to live lives worthy of His name. We we can't point at someone else and say, well, them, they, they need this. We all need this. We are all sinners justly deserving of God's wrath. We are all sinners who in and of ourselves have no hope. We, we don't often hear people talk this way in the evangelical church today. One pastor famously said that he doesn't like talking about sin because his people already feel bad enough. He would rather give them something positive to think about. I understand that sentiment. I I don't enjoy making people feel badly about themselves. But I also understand that a doctor who doesn't talk to his patients about their disease is no friend to their patients. We need to know that we are sinners. We need to know that we are justly deserving of God's wrath. And we need to know that it is not too late for us to escape the wrath to come. Peter was once asked why God delays. Why would God not just bring to conclusion history and establish his his kingdom? Do you remember what he said? He said, God is not slow in the way people normally count slowness, but he is patient, not wishing any to perish. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, but he longs for all to be saved. And so he, he, he creates space, he creates time for us to hear the gospel and respond. We cannot save ourselves, but Jesus Christ, the one too weak to carry his own cross, is strong enough to save all who call upon his name. For many of you, that is already your hope this morning. You have heard and believed this gospel, and even this morning you have a sure and certain hope that on that day you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted as the children of God, and you will be called to come and receive your inheritance in the kingdom. If that is true of you this morning, give thanks to God. It's what we've been doing all morning. It's the, it's the heart of worship, celebrating what is ours in Christ. May we never grow tired of thanking Him for what He has done for us. But if today you do not know Him as your Savior and Lord, 
I would say to you this morning, as you see Jesus upon the cross, do not weep for him, but weep for yourselves. A judgment is coming that will mean it would have been better for you never to have been born. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. For if you will turn to Jesus for salvation, if you will receive and rest upon him as he has offered to you in the gospel, you will be saved. His death may mean your life if you will call upon him for mercy. Do not neglect so great a salvation, but turn to him in faith and repentance and receive from him as a gift the life and blessing that has been secured by his blood. That, that's the first illusion. The one too weak to carry his cross is in fact our all-powerful Savior. While the ones with seemingly all the power are the ones in need of saving. But there's another illusion here. We see it in the, the next paragraph, verses 32 through 38, we're, we're told in verse 32 that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And in this way were fulfilled the words of Isaiah 53, he will be numbered among the transgressors. Certainly, such a death must have, have belied whatever claims he had made to be the Christ. Certainly, they must prove false well, that he was the chosen one, the, the anointed by God. At least that's what the rulers thought. As the, as the soldiers cast lots to divide his clothing, again, according to Old Testament prophecy, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save Himself, If he is truly the Christ of God, his chosen one. Even the soldiers got in on the abuse. You, you see them saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And so it seemed to the crowds that day that Jesus was just another false Messiah of whom there had been many. He was just another discredited Savior, another lunatic who had promised much but ultimately delivered very little. But of course, as I said, things are not as they seem. Appearances can be deceiving. Look again at verse 38. After describing the sad scene, Luke adds almost prosaically, there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Note carefully what it doesn't say. It doesn't say this is one who claimed to be king, but it rather says simply this is the king. You may remember that the, the Jewish leaders objected to what Pilate had had written. They, they wanted it to say that this was merely one who, who claimed. But Pilate rebuffed their, their demand, saying, I have written what I have written. And by writing what he did, Pilate inadvertently and unintentionally, to be sure, became the prophetic voice of God. Despite 
appearances. This is the king of the Jews. In fact, the irony of it all is that it is his suffering and and seeming defeat that, that do not disprove his claim, but are actually the expression of it. If Jesus had saved himself, he would not be able to save others. He saved others by not saving himself, by giving his life as the ransom for many. And it is because he is God's Christ, it is because he is the chosen one, it is because he is the anointed Savior that he suffers and dies. It is because he drank the sour wine of the cross that all who believe in him are now free to drink deeply the sweet wine of his salvation. As we saw just previously, there is a judgment on the horizon. And it is that judgment that Jesus endures upon the cross. And it is because he endured that judgment that he can pray as he does in verse 34. Look again, as Jesus is on the cross, as he is being abused, as he is being mocked, he prays, Father, forgive them. I don't know what you think when you hear those words, but we, we live in a day when people sometimes assume that, that forgiveness is obligatory, that it, that it is wrong, even unjust, not to Forgive. Forgiveness is, is thought of more as a right than as a mercy. But such nonsense, if I may call it that, can be believed only by those who have never truly been wronged. Miroslav Wolf, a Croatian theologian who has seen firsthand true violence in his home, the, the Balkans, writes, It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of such a thesis. In a sun-scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocents, it will invariably die. In a land of real violence, in 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 a land of ubiquitous injustice, the idea of easy, even obligatory forgiveness simply vanishes. If you doubt that, think for a moment Or imagine for a moment that the judge in the Larry Nassar case had simply decided to forgive. Yes, yes, we we know you have done terrible things. We know that you have hurt hundreds of women over dozens of years. But you're forgiven. Your debt is canceled. Or to make it more personal... Imagine that that someone in the the church or someone uh, near you had had sinned against you in significant ways and you brought your complaint to the elders and they simply said, you're right, what this person has done is terrible, but we forgive them. Their debt is canceled. Can you imagine the outrage? Can Can you feel it yourself? If you know what it is to be outraged at such easy forgiveness, such cheap grace, then you know in your heart that forgiveness is always costly. It is never free, and therefore it cannot 
be automatic. It cannot simply be assumed. And therefore, when we see Jesus pray as he does, we must ask, why? How? How is it possible for him to to pray for his enemies to be forgiven? And of course, we find our answer in his cross. Jesus is able to ask for their forgiveness because he himself paid the price of their forgiveness. It is only because Jesus gave his life upon the cross that he is able to pray, Father, forgive them. But notice, that's that's not all he prays. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that, that is... Significant. It's not that, that Jesus is suggesting that, that ignorance is somehow an excuse. Notice, even in their ignorance, they are guilty and in need of forgiveness. Ignorance is, is no excuse. But it is because they are ignorant that they may be forgiven. Because they are ignorant, the Holy Spirit may show them their sin and grant to them repentance unto life. You see, the only sin that cannot be forgiven, the only sin that will not be forgiven is a high-handed, hard-hearted refusal to repent. If the Holy Spirit shows you your sin and you say in your heart, I don't care, (laughs) I will not repent, I will not turn away from my sin, then you will not be forgiven. As the author of Hebrews says, there is no other sacrifice for sin for those who spurn the Son of God and profane the blood of the covenant. But... For those who who see their sin through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for those whose eyes are open, for those who come to recognize that what they have done is vile on the sight of their God and that it leads only to death, for them, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For as the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are here this morning, the the Spirit has opened your eyes to see your sin. Confess it. Own it. And then repent, turning from it to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. You will not be saved by your future good works, but your faith in the Savior, who was obedient even under death on a cross. Your faith in Him will receive His full blessing. All who call upon Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That is The gospel, that is why we call this good news. And so let me ask you, do you believe it? Do you believe that the one who did not save himself is the only one who can save you? Do you believe that the one too weak to carry his cross is the one strong enough to save all who call upon him for salvation? If you do, receive and rest upon him this morning, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, and acknowledge that in him your hope is secure. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Let us stand and believe it together.
I'm going to pray, and then the band will lead us in singing, Jesus, thank you. Father God, we come before you now, asking that you would open our eyes to believe, to receive, to rest in this gospel. Father, may we not weep for Jesus, but may we see him as the strong Savior that he is, the one who died upon the cross, that we might live, the one who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Father God, grant to us faith in him and bring forth the fruits of that faith in our life to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.